0: The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome back to Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander. Right across from me is the one, the only. Are you wearing a Halloween costume? No. Oh, you look like you dressed up like a Sasquatch. Oh, that's just how you look. Okay, I Tammy, the Sasquatch Underwood. Say good morning, Tam.
1: Good morning, Tam. Oh, hi everybody.
0: Jesus <laughs> fucking Christ! All right,
1: you knew that was coming, right? So you gave
0: me this name. Never even fucking heard of this dumbass.
1: Oh, that, this is a. I I heard. I mean, I've seen documentaries on him. Pretty bizarre, um, but it's a kind of a convoluted tale of murder. But you'll have to pay attention, boys and girls. Pay attention. You ready? I'm ready. Good. Oh, okay. Just checking. Sorry. Uh, There was a hair attached to my microphone. I had to get it off. Shut up, Scott. Anyways, (laughs) on January 18th, 1986, at approximately 1130 at night, a security guard was making his rounds at the Saddleback College in Mission Viejo, California. Now, he was driving through the parking lots, the dimly lit parking lots along the western perimeter, when he saw something lying in the student parking lot. Now...
0: It was a politician. <laughs> Politicians lie all the time. In, right <laughs> in a parking lot, in a street, <laughs> on the TV. It's always.
1: <laughs> That's a rim shot. <laughs> and, yeah. Anyways, so, of course, it was dark, and it was dimly lit area. So he assumed that a student had left a mannequin there as a prank, right? Because college kids do that shit all the time.
0: As opposed to a womankin.
1: Yeah, that's it right you know, there.
0: Mannequin, woman I can. got you it. You don't joke. have to
1: mansplain it to Remember, me.
0: Remember, mansplaining is
1: man-explaining. Yes. Wow, <laughs> wow. I, I understood what your stupid joke meant. Anyways, so, of course, he couldn't tell for sure. So, at first, he just drove past thinking, you know what? It's just a mannequin. However, he got to thinking about it. And he goes, you know what? I better check to make sure. So he turned around and went back. When he got out of his car, he noticed that uh, the this figure was lying on the pavement right next to a Chevy Citation, which, by the way, was my first car. And so as he walked up to it... He realized, nope, it's not a mannequin at all because it was laying in a pool of blood. It was he- a rock lobster. And so he realized that it was actually the body of a young woman.
0: No laughs on rock lobster No, the B-52s? I'm ignoring you. Ba-do-no-no-no-no-no-no-no. <laughs> no, no, Nothing? No? Bueller?
1: Bueller? The B-52s had some bizarre-ass songs. You know, I was talking
0: yesterday to someone and... Uh, I brought this up. They actually, B-52s, I'm impressed with and Let me tell you why. You have the two girls that sing, and their what? voices are amazing. And then you have that
1: off-key dude.
0: Then, you have, yeah, you have the dude that's off-key. Uh, we were sitting at the beach. Ooh, uh, everybody had matching towels. You know, it's like, you're way off-key. I don't know what the fuck is going on. And
1: he's not even really singing. He's just, yeah. But they
0: pull it off. Mm-hmm. That's a hard fucking trick to pull off, to be honest. That's not that's not an easy feat.
1: Yeah. At the
0: love shack. It's a little place where we can get together. Love, love shack.
1: shack, yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> love shack, baby. Anywho. I love that song.
1: Anyways.
0: I've had sex to that song.
1: I bet you have.
0: And the song, the other one that stands out is Closer by Nine Inch Nails. You let oh. me
1: violate you. That one. I, I know which one you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, so um, around that same time that... um. The security guard pulled up on the scene. Two other students were on their way to their vehicle when they noticed when, you know, they came across the scene as well. And they identified the woman as 23-year-old Robin Brandley. Now, she was a communications major who had just left a party at the Fine Arts Building a few minutes before that. Uh, Apparently, there was a music recital and she had volunteered as an usher. And then there was a party immediately after the recital.
0: At the love shack.
1: Anyways, she was wearing a long print dress with flower designs, but the dress had been pulled up over her stomach, revealing that she was wearing bikini underwear and knee-high stockings.
0: Ooh, tell me more. go wow, Anyways, wow. Your mom wore that for They me.
1: also found a purse, her purse laying nearby on the pavement, but the, there was, her body was, I mean, it was just laying in a pool of blood. Now, one of the first pe- uh, officers on the scene was Detective Mike Stephanie. Um, he noticed right away that she had been stabbed numerous times, mostly in her neck, chest, and back. He also noticed that there were cuts to her hands, which he thought, you know, theorized were defensive wounds. Then, other than her, her, her body and blood, there was little to no evidence. There was no other DNA, no fingerprints, no hair, no clothing fibers, nothing. Nothing. So, and here we
0: are talking about it.
1: Right. <laughs> However, an autopsy report did show that she had been stabbed 41 times. Okay.
0: Why? Okay. I have a I have a question for our serial killers out there that listen to the show. Why the fuck are you stabbing people so many times? I mean, I understand the rage thing, okay? I, I understand that. But seriously, once, twice, three times a stabbing it should be enough. You should be able to kill them with that. If you can't kill him within three fucking strikes. Maybe killing's not for you. I'm just saying. Maybe you need to go on to something else. Like I don't know, like uh, jigsaw puzzles, or <laughs> or take a fucking class on on how to make sushi, jiu jitsu. Yeah, uh, jiu jitsu, karate, wah <laughs> something. Because you know, stabbing the is not quite karate.
1: For you.
0: Or or if you still insist on it maybe you find a different modus operandi. Like, I don't know, use, a, I don't know, like a, a, a squirrel. Like right. you could like, uh, load a squirrel into like a, a, a giant, like, you know, uh, pressured gun <laughs> and shoot squirrels at people.
1: That would be epic.
0: That's a pretty epic way. I mean, you'd go down in history for that. Or, or, or you could throw freaking porcupines at them. Something like that. Stab is just not for you. I'm just saying.
1: Maybe you should just take up another hobby. I'm just saying, kill
0: smarter. Be better. Be fucking better. Don't be disappointed. Apparently, this
1: guy was pretty good because her death went unsolved for 11 years. Holy moly. Yeah. Now, on July 17th, 1988... 1988, 29-year-old prostitute Julie McGee went missing after she was picked up by an unknown male in Cathedral City area of Riverside County. Um, Her remains were later found with no identification in a remote desert area. Um, Identifying her body was even more difficult by the mutilation caused by the... uh, uh, what what are they called? You know the scavengers in the area, the coyotes and other animals. Yeah, the
0: coyotes and everything. Yeah. yeah.
1: Now, but there were cartridge cases for a forty five caliber handgun near her body. Her, uh, but then it's like once her remains were found, it was investigated as a single, isolated, a uh, one and done homicide. Two months after that, on September twenty fifth, nineteen eighty eight. 31-year-old Marianne Wells, another prostitute, was picked up by somebody in San Diego County and driven into a deserted industrial complex, and her body was later found, <coughs> shot once in the head, and again, a cartridge case was left behind, as was the other murder, right? She was
0: shot to the heart, and you're to blame.
1: She was shot in the head. Because they- she didn't give head? Oh, my God. They did find a condom at this scene as well with her DNA as well as what DNA of somebody who they believe to be the killer. Remember, if you're going to
0: do some raping, make sure you use a condom, but take that condom with you, okay? That's right. Like I said, kill smarter people. Don't make us give you the dumbass Lucas and Tool Award. I'm just saying, (laughs) be better. Be better.
1: You don't want the... Davis and Butt had a word of the year.
0: Exactly. If I'm looking, so, at, if I'm looking at your 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 mo, and I go, holy shit, you make Lucas and Tool look like geniuses. You have a problem. You do. And I'm going to make fun of you after you're caught for the rest of our lives.
1: Right. Forever. Right. <laughs> exactly. Forever. So, but even though they had this, you know, stranger's DNA, that lead didn't go anywhere, and this death was also being investigated as a one and done. However, when the next body showed up seven months later, the investigators finally started making connections that, hey, these guys are re- these deaths are related. On April 16th, 1989, 20-year-old prostitute Tammy Irwin. Yeah, it's a she Tammy. She spelled it wrong,
0: but nah, it it's, name, it's still a Tammy. Just, just like you. The- up. I wonder if she worked down on Sandy Boulevard, like you. <sighs> Do they ever get you too confused? I'm just asking for a friend. I hate you. Did she take coupons?
1: <laughs> no, no, no. Leave me alone, butt nugget. Anyways, she was picked up and driven to a remote area near Palm Springs where she was shot three times, her body was dumped, and again, cartridges were found, cartridge casings were found near her body. Now, investigators from Riverside and investigators from San Diego County began comparing notes. They realized at that time that they had a serial killer. Ballistic tests showed that the cartridge casings from all of the murders were Matched. Each of the women had been killed with the same gun, but they lacked at this point a weapon or a suspect. But there was also no link between the prostitutes, but there was no link between the prostitute shootings and the murder of Robin, the stabbing of Robin Branley. The victim contrasts were so great. I mean, one was Branley obviously wasn't a prostitute, she was a student, and she had not been shot, she was stabbed. So for the next three and a half years, there were no other murders that they could attribute to the same killer. Then 19-year-old Jennifer Asbenson, a nursing assistant in Palm Springs, was was scheduled to work the night shift at a home for disabled children. On September 27, 1992, she said that she was on her way to the bus stop when she stopped in at a store to make a purchase. But when she came out, she saw that the last bus for the night had pulled away from the bus stop so she was in a panic she goes how else am i going to get to work right she said right around that same time a man pulled up in a car and asked her if he could give her a ride according to her she goes he did not seem threatening and in fact he seemed like a good samaritan so she said sure um she she later said that she had no sense of fear and thought that he was so nice and so charming although he did make some advances toward her he dropped her off at footwork for her shift from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Now, when she got off work the next day, he was actually waiting outside for her. And he, she said, um, she would tell the police later that she wasn't frightened by him when he said, let me give you a ride home. She thought, hey, he's not a danger. He's just being nice, you know, all that. So she said, you know what, okay. But once she was in the vehicle, things took a drastic turn. He put a knife to her throat Tied her h- hands behind her back and drove into the desert.
0: Some women are into that. I'm just some saying. Some are.
1: Not the knife to the throat so much, but... Oh,
0: believe me, some are. <sighs> some are super kinky. Like, that's my deal. I'm like,
1: okay. <sighs> I couldn't imagine. So, when they arrived in this remote area, she said that her nightmare intensified. He cut off her shorts and her bra and shoved her underpants in her mouth. After that, he forced her to perform sexual acts and tried to rape her. Then he strangled her until she lost consciousness. But then when she regained consciousness, he opened the car door and told her to get out. Right? But as she was getting out, he yanked her by her hair back into the... Backwards and then put her in the trunk. Right?
0: Oh, pull my da- pull my hair, daddy.
1: Right. Uh, some of us like a good hair pulling occasionally. Just saying.
0: I'm fucking traumatized. See? Thanks.
1: You're welcome. Now, now you know how I feel every day you speak to me.
0: You fucking now, drugs.
1: She just knew she was going to die, right? She was like, I know I'm dead. So she was desperately searching for the release mechanism in the trunk, and she found it. <laughs> but she waited for what seemed like the right moment to jump out of the vehicle. So when she was out of the vehicle and on the road, several cars drove by her and didn't stop. Okay, here's this naked woman. Who just released herself from a trunk, and nobody's stopping to help her.
0: Whatever. Uh, hey, baby, you put out. You're <laughs> naked. Do you know Tammy?
1: So... Shut up. I hate you. So, several cars... But, but then she, like, jumped in front of a truck that was being driven by some Marines to force it to stop. Now, her abductor obviously saw these two Marines helping her, and like any good citizen, he left. He was like, I ain't fucking with no Marines, because they come in and they get it done. So the Marines actually drove her somewhere safe, and she... You know, made file the police report. Then, approximately two and a half years after that, on March eleventh, nineteen ninety-five, again in Palm Springs, um, thirty-two-year-old. Denise Manny, another prostitute, was picked up from a street and driven to a remote desert area. Now, according to the police records, she was disrobed. she had taken off her clothes, and after that, the killer tied her hands behind her back, sexually assaulted her, then put a forty-five caliber gun in her mouth and blew the back of her head off. Holy shit. Yeah. Now, following the, t- the MO from the other murders, he took her clothes but and left her body in the desert. On April fourteenth, nineteen ninety six, across the country in Cook County, Illinois, another prostitute was picked up off the streets in the Wolf Lake area, which is uh, that's a lake that straddles Hammond, Indiana and the Chicago border. Oh, okay. Yeah, so sometime during during this time, Laura I don't even know how to pronounce it, U Locky, U Y L A K I. Yeah, it sounds
0: close enough. Yeah. It.
1: She was shot in the head twice with a thirty-eight caliber revolver. Pretty sure
0: she's not gonna complain about you mispronouncing her name. I
1: know, right? So and after she was shot, her killer threw her into the into Wolf Lake where it was found on the Chicago side. Now the police are theorized at that point that the killer had taken her clothing and other items to keep her from being identified. However, they did not connect these murders with the ones in California, right? So, three months later, on July fourteenth nineteen ninety six the naked body of twenty one year old Cassandra Corum, another prostitute, was found floating in the Vermilion River in Livingston County, Illinois. Um, she had been duct tape had been placed over her mouth and she'd been shot once in the head and an autopsy l- report later s- note indicated that she had been stabbed seven times as well in the chest and head. Her wrists had been handcuffed and duct tape had been used to bind her ankles. Now she had gone missing after being last being seen in a bar in Hammond, Indiana, where she was seen talking to a man. And then she, uh, she left with him getting into his truck. The, on August 2nd, 1996, the naked body of 22 year old Lynn Huber was found floating in Wolf Lake, a mere you know, feet from where Laura Ulaki's body had been found earlier. Like most of the other victims, she had been a prostitute, and he had left none of her clothing or any identification near the murder scene, right? Now, on November fourteenth, nineteen 1996, a Hammond, Indiana patrol officer by the name of Warren Fryer did a routine stop on a pickup truck after he saw it, That the driver was parked outside of a a known crack house. And there was a known prostitute in the vehicle with him.
0: Was her name Tammy Tell? No.
1: I have a question. I I,
0: I actually have a question.
1: Is it going to be stupid?
0: No, it's a legit question. You ready?
1: I'm going to hit you. Go ahead.
0: Do you hookers have a union... I'm just curious because I would think okay, that they, you guys all, would have a, a union. You can't
1: say "you hookers" when you talk to me because I am not a hooker, Scott. Sir,
0: I'm going to need you to calm down. I just want to know if y'all have a uh, have a union that would protect you all from this. I see. I ask a simple question, and then what happens? I get to get beat up for it.
1: You're going to get fair. beat up.
0: Is it because you're wearing a gay pride shirt?
1: Okay, people, I am wearing my. You don't even notice the the significance of this shirt, do you?
0: gay pride. You know what that no, is? No,
1: it is my Rocky Horror Picture Show Lips with the, with my Dallas Cowboys emblem. Same, same. See this? I hate you. Same, same. I hate same, you. same. So anyways. They
0: got lips, alright. Oops, I dropped the ball again. You're so stupid. I hope somebody doesn't come and tackle me from behind.
1: I hate you. I hate you. Two, three snaps in the Z for me. <laughs> Never mind. Anyway. That's your Cowboys. I Any <laughs> Anywho's, so as a precaution, because you know the the vehicle was outside of a known crack house. Fryer called for backup and waited for other uh, officers to arrive before he approached the vehicle. Now, as they were approaching the vehicle, 31 year old Andrew Erdialis was actually being very cooperative. And as Fryer was speaking to him, he explained that he had served in the Marines. And then Fryer noticed on this in the inside the pickup there was a gun, a revolver. So he yells gun to his fellow officers. <laughs> they, they retrieved the revolver, and it was a snub-nosed, chrome-plated thirty eight Special. And they also noted that there were it was fully loaded with six bullets. Since he didn't have a permit for the gun, he was arrested uh, and charged with carrying a concealed weapon, and they confiscated it. Now, as they were, you know, Fryer did note that as they were preparing to have the vehicle towed, that the vehicle was immaculately clean inside and out he noticed that the truck bed and the cab were quote as clean as you would wash the outside of your car as if they had come out of the showroom there were also rolls of duct tape inside the vehicle now Erdie ellis was soon released on concealed weapons charges, but later convicted of a misdemeanor for the unauthorized possession of a handgun okay I. okay now, on April 1st, 1997, Fryer received a call about a man and woman fighting at a motel. Then no- it was, at that time, it was known as the American Inn in Hammond. According to records. Er, When the officer arrived on scene, Erdialis told him that the woman, a prostitute, had stolen something from him. The prostitute, however, who was also known to the police, said that Erdialis was, quote, kind of kinky and that the altercation arose because he wanted to take her to Wolf Lake, handcuff her in the back of his truck and have sex with her. Now, at the time, Fryer told the woman, geez, don't do that. We're finding girls up there dead. Okay? (laughs) Okay? Now, he went back to the station, filed a report about the incident, but didn't arrest <laughs> Erdialis or the woman. Instead, he later ran a computer check on Erdialis that encompassed known infractions involving him and Hammond, including the the November 1996 incident in, involving the, on, the uh, concealed weapons charge, right? Now, then he wrote a supplemental note that included all the information he knew about Erdialis, up to that point and forwarded it to the detective division because he had made the Wolf Lake connection to the murdered prostitutes. Copies of the reports were in turn forwarded to homicide detectives with the Chicago police department with the hope that the information might be useful. So following their review of the documents, the uh, Chicago police detective, Don McGrath asked the Hammond police for his, uh, to turn over the confiscated revolver. So when they received the weapon, (coughs) McGrath took it to a gun expert, and after a thorough examination, the ballistic test results showed that it was the same gun that had been used to kill the three women in the Chicago area. So they knew that they had their killer, right? So on April twenty second, 1997, McGrath and his partner, a guy by the name of Raymond Krakowski, began to stake out an alley near Erdiaz's parents' house where he had been living following his discharge from the Marine Corps a few years ago. Now, it was a working-class neighborhood where, unassuming, the, was lined with duplexes and bungalows and everything. And the murder suspect's parents lived more than, had been living there for more than 10 years. As luck would have it, though, they didn't have to wait very long because he came out at approximately 9 a.m. to go to work where he was a security guard at a downtown Chicago Eddie Bauer store. Now, the two detectives walked up to him, told him they needed to talk to him about the incident in November 1996, in which his gun had been confiscated, and he politely told them that the case was resolved. But they insisted there was unfinished business regarding the revolver, and after he hesitated a moment, he agreed to go down to the police station with them. We're going to
0: take you downtown.
1: (laughs) Shut up. At one point uh detective mcgrath asked him where he got the gun and he told him that he had purchased it about five years before that in calumet city for about three hundred dollars when they asked if he had ever been if it had ever been out of his possession he said it had no it hadn't and it had been under his exclusive control until it had been confiscated by the police at another point during the questioning Detective McGrath said that he and his partner were investigating some unsolved crimes, shooting deaths to be precise, involving a thirty-eight caliber. And they showed him the photos of the three women. At first, he said that he didn't recognize them. But when they said that the bullets used in their murder matched his gun, he, he hesitated for a moment. Then he s- responded that he guessed he would not be going to work that day. Guess I'm not going to work today, huh?
0: <laughs>
1: he removed his security badge loosened his tie and began to untie his shoelaces. He then provided them details of the murders of those three women. And then without any additional prompting from the detectives he also said that there were some matters that police in California might be interested in. Up until that point the police in neither state had connected any of the murders together with the ones in Illinois. Now um oh So then he proceeds to go over the victim, you know, the deaths with them. He said that, um, he explained to the detectives that he had met Laura Ulaki sometime, uh, during the winter of 1996 and they had gone out on a few dates. He said that they'd had sex on at least two occasions near Wolf Lake and then, uh, He said using a sleeping bag, he said he kept in the back of his truck, according to the court records. It had been in April 1996 when he picked her up and they went to Wolf Lake again. And along the way, they got into an argument. So when they arrived, he took his 38 caliber out, which was loaded from beneath the driver's seat, and was showing it to her when it went off on accident. Um, And so he said Laura got mad and then all hell broke loose he went on to say that she attempted to grab the gun and broke his left index finger in the process and then uh, unable to gain control of the situation, uh, she jumped out of the truck and tried to run. He followed her and fired a couple of rounds in her direction as he chased her, and then after she fell down, he went over to her and determined that she was dead. It was then, he said, that he had made the decision to toss her body into the lake, but before he threw her in, He undressed her and took her clothes with him. And on the drive back to Chicago, he threw the clothes out of the truck from the passenger's side. Okay. Then he went on to talk about how he murdered Lynn Huber. Uh, She was actually his seventh victim. And he said that he met her the summer of 1996 and that she had been working as a prostitute in Chicago. As with the last victim... He said that he and she had had sex on, on at least two occasions, and on the evening in late July or early August, he said that he had seen her carrying a large garbage bag. So he stopped and offered her a ride, and she said, "Okay." Uh, um, let's see, blah blah blah. Oh, the detectives, you know, did take note that her body was found in, on August second of nineteen ninety six. So as he continued to speak, he said that he had driven into an alley where they could have sex he he says that she started arguing with him and started quote acting kind of ditzy before she tried to get out of the truck he said that he grabbed her and shot her in the head with the gun he kept under the driver's seat after he murdered her he had placed her body in the bed of the truck and drove it to wolf lake and he removed her clothing and as he removed her hit clo- her clothing he pricked his finger with a needle he said that Pricking his finger made him so angry, which prompted him to take out the knife and stab her. He said that he stabbed her a lot of times in the back and afterwards shot her again. He then said that he took her naked body out and threw it in the lake and left with the garbage bag that she'd been carrying. And when he went through the contents, he noticed that it was clothing, uh so he took the clothes that she had been wearing, along with the clothing in the bag, and took them to the Salvation Army because she wouldn't need them anymore. His words, not mine. <laughs> Are you there? Yeah, I'm, I'm oh, listening. I was, like, You're just really quiet.
0: I'm, I'm paying close attention.
1: Okay. Then he goes on to talk about how he murdered Cassandra. Um, he said that he'd known her for about two years before he killed her. Killed her on July thirteenth, nineteen ninety six. He said they met at a bar in Hammond and they had driven to Wolf Lake to have sex. And her body had been found the next day in the lake. At one point, he he did say that she had some. She said something that angered him. He couldn't remember exactly what, but that's what caused him to hit her in the face numerous times with his hand and fist.
0: That's what happens when you don't make that sandwich right. Get his that right.
1: Anger. It seemed that the detectives noted that his anger was a recurring theme. Frightened by he said that she was frightened by his violence, she panicked and began to fight back, which is what prompted him to handcuff her behind her back. He said he then removed her clothing and described her as seeming numb with anxiety and fear, a passive and submissive. He said he then, you know, tied up her feet with duct tape or taped her feet together with duct tape, and placed duct tape over her mouth. He said that he, he was still pissed off about whatever she had said at, as they kept driving down I-55, I and she was terrified, bounding, gagged, naked woman lying on the front seat who ha- was about to be killed, right? He knew he was going to kill her. He, he says after he drove for about two hours, he began to get tired and decided to exit, get off the interstate, but he continued to drive, eventually crossing a bridge that led to a small park where he had stopped and shut off the truck's engine. He said that he and he and she had gotten out of the truck and he grabbed his gun from beneath the seat. And after they walked towards the back of the truck, she was still naked and she turned to face him as if she had planned to say something when he shot her. Um, After she fell to the ground, he was still angry with her from that earlier altercation, so he took out his knife and stabbed her, quote, a few times before he dropped her body into the river over the bridge and threw her clothing out the window as he drove back home. Um, As he explained, he said he had been, quote, trained to kill in the Marine Corps. He said that he had not felt any sympathy for Cassie. She was just a whore, he said. Then he goes on to describe a loner. Uh, No, I'm sorry. He was described as a loner. He was someone who had difficulty engaging in small talk. He graduated from Thornbridge High School in Dolerton, Illinois, in 1982 and was given the graduating senior label of social outcast. He did have a few friends, but, you know, he did have a few friends, but, you know, still considered an outcast. He joined the Marine Corps a short time after high school and was stationed in Camp Pendleton and other locales around California, hence the California murders, right? He also claimed that he fell in love with a 15-year-old girl and got her pregnant. He said that marriage had been out of the question because he had been afraid of her parents and what the Marine Corps might have done to him being an adult having sex with a 15-year-old. So he knew that as a result, they both agreed that she should get an abortion. He goes, "I love her and still love her," is what he told a, a professor at Yale University upon his arrest. He goes, "But the law in the state of California and the righteous, and the righteous in the Marine Corps might not see it that way." And that's true, and it is true. Now, there was background information and testimony at his trial that showed significant. L- evidence that he had a mental disorder, a mental illness on both sides of his family and that he had been sexually abused by relatives and that he had been physically and emotionally abused by his parents. Now, during his military service, he received several promotions, but was later demoted when those un- his superiors refused. I'm sorry. He was later demoted when those who were under him refused to obey his orders he killed four women during his Southern California military service he, and received an honorable discharge in, in 1991 when he returned to Chicago to live with his parents. He returned to California again in 1992 and for a short visit, in which he, and that's when he attacked Jennifer Asbenson, but then returned to Chicago again. And then in March of 1995, while he was on vacation in Palm Springs, is when he killed Denise. Okay, the fifth known California victim and a nephew. Oh my god, I hate you.
0: <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, then he then he went on to tell the detectives how um, led them through the details of each of the killings. He did. That's when he claimed that the college student Robin Brindley was ac- Brandley was actually his first murder victim, according to the you know court documents. He was stationed at Camp Pendleton near San Diego. And he had become upset regarding some relationships with some of the people he was having uh, with some of the people on base he was having, and he decided that he wanted to quote rob someone. He said he went out carrying a big old hunting knife, about eleven inches long, and drove to Saddleback College where he waited in the dark parking lot. He said that the, uh, he explained that the victim quote could have been anybody. And it was just a random female, and that turned out to be Robin.
0: You ever notice it's always a dark place? Like, there he was in a dark alley. There he was in a dark corner. There he was in a dark parking lot. It's never like, hey, this was, like, well lit. There was lights everywhere. Them lights, bright halogens, and... You know, it was lit up like the 4th of July, even though it was like 11 o'clock at night. You know, and then he killed her. It's never anything like that. It's always a dark, creepy place.
1: Oh, yeah. It's never a well-lit area, Scott.
0: Ever. Much like some women's crotches. A dark, creepy place.
1: Oh, you just... Ugh. You're welcome. Oh. <sighs> So he said that he walked when he, when he saw her. He went up behind her, put it put his you know snuck up behind her, placed his hand over her mouth, and demanded that she give him her purse. Once she did, he started to stab her in the back. Then when she fell to the pavement, he began stabbing her in the chest. He says, that, and this is disgusting to me. At one point, he said the <coughs> knife got stuck in her ribs, and in order for him to get it out, he had to place his foot on her body to brace it while he struggled to get the knife out.
0: That's happened to me when I've been cutting up uh, pork ribs. I get stuck. You got to pry that sucker out.
1: Yeah. He said that when he was done stabbing her, he just left her there to die. Now, he had blood on his hands, jacket and jeans, and he had known he had to get back on base undetected. So he rubbed grease from his car engine on his hands and clothes to conceal the blood. He told the military police at the guard station at the base entrance that his car had broken down and he had to make repairs. He then told detectives that he had later Picked up a prostitute in Hollywood with whom He'd had sex and that he was Carrying And and that he was carrying right Um Then he goes on to talk about you know The murders of Julie McGee, Marianne Wells and Tammy Irwin And then at one point in his Confession he described the detectives The ordeal which He had put Jennifer Asbenson through right The one who got away Um Let's see, where was I? We're right here. Shut up. Anyways, he said that after he offered her a ride to work that September evening, he had asked her for her phone number, and she had given him one. The problem, he said, is that it wasn't... A number, it wasn't her number. He tried calling her after dropping her off at work. He said that he was so he got to thinking about it during the night and got angry. So he waited for her to get off work so he could offer to take her breakfast and give her a ride home. He said he had begun quote feeling upset about the number or something. Something was just kind of building up, you know, tension. At one point while they were driving, he said he had reached over and grabbed her by her hair and showed her a gun, after which she became quote, pretty sub- pretty much submissive from that part forward. Yeah, you someti- think?
0: Sometimes you got to teach a girl a lesson. I'm just saying. Oh, like show them a gun. And-, and
1: that's why he uses duct tape too, because women don't shut the fuck up. So. Shut up. He forced her, shut up. He said that he called her a bunch of unpleasant names and tied her hands behind her back. Uh, uh, he said, quote, I think before we started moving, after I tied her hands up, I reached over and kissed her. I just put my lips on her mouth and then I just started, you know, I was trying to make out with her. Why? (laughs) To prove he could? Probably. Yeah.
0: Small dick syndrome is what that is.
1: Yeah. He said at one point he forced her to have oral sex on him, perform oral sex on him. And according to court documents, um, uh, no, according to court court documents, he forced her to perform oral sex on him. I I read that wrong. However, he did fail. He said that he failed to get an erection uh, when he forced her. When he was forcing her to do this, so she feared for life. Um, he, he again tried to rape her and still couldn't get an erection. So, you know, he was mad at this point, And so he started choking her.
0: Limp and small dick. That's a good shot right? there, fucking Andrew. She, she, Andy.
1: He said that she kept kicking and her saliva was coming out of her mouth. Her face was turning blue, then red. It was just a battle for a while. Um, He said after his hands became tired from choking her, he forced her out of the car and threatened her so that she would make, you know, threaten her so that she would try to perform oral sex again. And again, he failed to get an erection. So he forced her into the trunk of his car and drove off. And when she escaped, his first thought had been to shoot her. But he drove away instead because, you know, the two Marines were coming up on him. So that was the last time. He saw her. I saw her. I don't know if somebody else picked her up and finished what I started. However, in contrast to his version, Asmundson testified in court that he had been successful in his attempt to rape her after he cut her clothes off. Okay? You know what they say,
0: man. Love is a battlefield.
1: So whatever. Um, let's see here. He went Erd, Erdie Ellis went on trial in Cook County, Illinois in 2002 for the murders of Laura Lynn and... And was convicted of first-degree murder in both cases, and he was given the death sentence. However, Governor George Ryan at the time commuted all Illinois death sentences prior to leaving his office in 2003, resulting in him be- getting an LWAP, life without parole, right? Yep. In 2004, he was convicted of first-degree murder in in. Convicted of first-degree murder for the death of Cassandra Quorum, and again received a death sentence. He's currently on death row in Illinois, but has appealed his sentences, obviously. And then he will eventually be extradited to California to face charges in the murders of Robin Branley, Julie McGee, Marian Wells, Tammy Irwin, and Denise Manny after the evidentiary segment of his appeal in Illinois is done. In July of 2009, under state law that allows for multiple murders connected to one another to be prosecuted together, prosecutors in California agreed to consolidate the five California murder cases into one, um, which will be uh, tried by, I'm sorry, my eyeball, senior deputy district attorney Howard Gundy of Orange County District Attorney's Office. Now, according to Doc, uh, Detective McGrath, he testified at Erdialis' sentencing for the murder of Cassie Corum. He recalled that Erdialis had told him as he escorted him back to lockup on one occasion that he was happy that he had been caught. Uh, McGrath, uh, well, you know, I'm kind of glad in a way that you caught me. I was starting to get the urge again. So, can you imagine?
0: He was out there Californicating. Or trying to. Okay.
1: Cass- Californication.
0: Yeah, a little red hot chili peppers. Uh-huh.
1: Californication. But yeah, so that's the case of Andrew Erdialis. Kind of a bizarre f- screw up, huh? Really? That,
0: this dude's just fucked, man. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Alright, let's wrap this one up because we gotta do one more I'm episode done. before I go and start chopping down fucking berry bushes.
1: Yeah, I'm done.
0: Thank God. Remember, boys and girls. I hate you. Remember, boys and girls, if you like Dallas Cowboys, quit being that gay. Root for a real football team. Um,
1: Again, I hate you.
0: I love pissing you off.
1: Oh. You can send us an
0: email at Brutal Nation, com. Check us out on Medium, Crime Beat on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Log on to Facebook and join the citizens of Brutal Nation. Uh, what else? Let's see. Uh, fuck me running. Um, there's still tickets on sale for the show coming up on November 3rd for Twisted Blue, my band, uh, with two awesome bands opening up for us.
1: Yep, Lords Blackpool <coughs> and Wild Horse. Mm,
0: so wildy horsey. Stop it! It's a deep black pool. You, you know what? Too? I
1: hope they shoot you.
0: Uh, probably. I'm gonna fucking they're gonna shoot me at the show in the green room. Yep, I'm gonna die. This show's copyrighted 2023 by Twisted Blue, LLC. All rights are reserved if you're hearing this or any part of this on anybody else's show or podcast except for Metal Cross Radio. They're lying. Thieving bastards. Bastards. And we will talk to you guys later on. Bye-bye.
1: Bye, everybody.